Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. In this week's pod, we were joined by Owen Condren to discuss Building with Conscience Cement's Eco Dilemma. Owen is a Corporate Development Director at Ecosem, in charge of the strategic structuring of the business to allow it to take advantage of the many opportunities that it currently has in front of it. He's been with the company two and a half years, his background is in finance, and he spent 15 years working in real estate, infrastructure, and tech private equity, investing in the US, the UK, and throughout Europe. He's a keen rugby fan and very average player whose lowest moment has to be the time Dale, a prop, outsprinted him. A fullback <laughs> come winger on an attacking move around 10 years ago. Jeez, who, who wrote this? Um, wow. Well, um, that was a really interesting podcast. I didn't think, you know, we, we spent one hour 20 talking about concrete. Nothing, yeah. you know, and who'd have thought that it could actually be such an exciting topic. And there's just so much innovation going on in in the industry like what, what were your thoughts Dale? yeah no absolutely first to clarify i did not write that but i genuinely did outsprint owen uh, when he was at the end of his career um but yeah it was good good times playing rugby with owen you know he's he's, he's irish he's, he's he's full of passion uh, loves his rugby but clearly martin also loves and has a lot of enthusiasm for cement concrete and clinker um, so listen out for what the difference is between those three folks. But as you say, um, you know, we, we, we always, well, I, I always felt it was, you know, Owen had the ability to make concrete sexy, but not as sexy as he did on this podcast. Uh, were, there, were there certain things that, that stood out particularly for you, Martin, that you want to highlight? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed his explanation of just the, the definitions because I, I certainly have used concrete and cement interchangeably. And I'll be honest, I'd never even heard of clinker until today. Um, I really liked his um, explanation of some of the innovations going on in the industry. He he talked about tin timber, and you know that's that's seen as a bit of a wonder product at the moment. And some of the roles of governments in in driving change and innovation in the industry. Uh, how about you, Dale? Yeah, I think the, the for me the the perspective globally that he brought on how concrete is, um, I guess, manufactured how cement is manufactured throughout the globe is different depending on raw materials, what's available, the demand of concrete required for the speed of construction. Um, so I think this one is really, really relevant to a lot of our listenership across the globe. So He's, I, he's I, very stats-driven as well. I think yeah. Val would have enjoyed this one. <laughs> he did, yeah. We don't want to mention Val. He cried off sick for this one. But anyway, we'll let him listen to this. We'll let everyone else listen to this as well, Martin. Let's leave it there, I think. So, folks, as we say, keep listening, keep liking, and keep paying it forward. In today's economic climate, construction cost and schedule overruns can be disastrous. Innate construction software helps you spot risks before they happen. Their cloud-based solutions give you the real-time insights you need to minimize risk and improve operational efficiency. With Innate, you keep projects on schedule and under budget. 
Get started today at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T.com. Hello, project people, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Project Chatter podcast. You've guessed it, Novell on this one. He's cried foul. I think he's probably drowning his sorrows, Martin, with Australia jumping out of the, the World Cup at the pool stage. What do you reckon? Yeah, it must be a curse of Eddie Jones <laughs> again. But yeah, a bit more, a uh, bit more exciting for you guys, Ireland and South Africa. It absolutely is, and very apt for our guest on on the show, Mr. Owen Condren. How are you doing, sir? I'm very good. Uh, even better after the weekend in Paris. Lovely, lovely. Well, there's a, a few more games yet to go. Um, South Africa, Australia out. South Africa in. Ireland's in. Martin, yep. for you, England's in. I don't know how, but they're in. But um, let's not talk World Cup too much. We'll save it maybe for the end. Um, how do we make cement sexy? Well, we'll try, I think, um, with, the, with the topic of this episode. But before we get there... Owen, I don't know if you mind sharing a bit of your origin story and sort of your backdrop and what's brought you to um, present day dealing with cement. Yeah, it's been a fairly uh, roundabout uh, course to get here, I suppose. Um, I did, uh, my claim to fame is that I did actually uh, do my um, thesis at Underground on cement, which is absolutely uh pathetic in many ways <laughs> but but it actually got published it got published i had two papers published uh so there you go like my at the very beginning um i i had sort of a, a long i love affair with cement for some strange reason but uh hopped back over as quickly as possible after uni uh, where i studied um, engineering in trinity college in dublin um, and quickly uh, left ireland to get into the bright lights of london and into the world of finance um, so um, I went into uh, largely for for the majority of my career. I've been in um, uh, private equity to a large extent, um, investing into various real estate or various asset classes, including real estate, infrastructure, a few tech investments along the way. Um, spent some time out in the states in business school. Came back out here to to London, and again um, was investing across the UK, Europe, and the USA. So um, um, I sort of jumped into uh ecosem um probably two and a half years ago now um having known them for quite a while actually um they're an irish company been around for 20 years and um one thing led to another after various conversations and um they had uh, really great breakthrough opportunities that i found too hard uh, to resist uh, trying to help out with and hopped on there a couple of years ago to help them uh basically try to take advantage of these big opportunities um, in various ways. And it being an entrepreneurial company, um, there's been lots of um, uh, learning curves for me along the way, having come sort of from a more of a finance background. But um, I was lucky enough in my earlier career to spend a lot of time with operators and actually uh, was in a, in a tech company called VTS as well for a short time. So um, I had a nice sort of um, uh, uh, sort of uh, What's the word? Um, a, a leap over from finance to operations, back to finance and back into operations again. So all good so far. Nice. Lovely. Well, you certainly aren't the average project professional we have on this podcast, which is great because you're going to bring us a different perspective here. But guaranteed, I reckon 99% of our listeners work on projects that deal with concrete or cement Most probably. or clinker. Yeah. 
But let's get into those. We love baseline. So myself, Martin, Val, we all have a project controls background, right? And what controls folk love to do on projects is set baselines, right? We love them. We like baseline. We're there. That's like we geek out on baselines. The more detail, the better. Um, what is cement? What is concrete? What is clinker? And what's the difference between the three? Okay. Um, if you want me to go detailed, I'm probably going to end up speaking for the next hour nonstop. But I'll uh, I'll try and take it in in in, in tidbits so we we can sort of uh, keep the conversation going. But I, I guess the first place to start is that <clears throat> concrete is the sort of structural stuff that we see all around us. Um, and I think the most important, or one of the most important things to start with is just to recognize how amazing a product it is, frankly, and, and, and how um, it has shaped society for a long time till now and will continue to shape society for a long time to come. And, you know, it's, it's you know, every so often it starts getting a bit of a bad rep and, and the bad rep around now is, is as a result of cement, which is in concrete, uh, which I'll get back to in a second, but, you know, the CO2 associated with that. But ultimately, um, it is a truly remarkable product. I mean, you've got this thing um, which is abundantly available around the world, is incredibly cheap, um, so that um, pretty much anybody can purchase it, incredibly easy to use, so anybody can use it, can effectively flow like water and take any shape for about two hours, and then you know, after two hours, harden and stay that way for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Like It is incredible. Um, and it's used, um, as I said, extensively throughout the world. Um, and it's, it's sort of built the environments in which we live. So um, there's a huge amount of it consumed. And there'll be continuing to be a huge amount consumed. I think uh, one of his uh, books, Bill Gates said, and, and I like using this quote because it sort of shows the scale, but um, he said that there's going to be a new New York City built every year, every month for the next 40 years. I mean, there's just a huge amount Holy of building shit. that continues to be done across the world. And we sort of live in our developed world bubble where, you know, um, there is there's quite a lot of construction always going around. You just need to open your eyes. But when it comes to uh, the the world that is developing around us in, in, into sort of uh, certainly Asia, Southeast Asia, certain parts of Africa, there's just a phenomenal amount of this stuff being consumed in any given year. And there's one other uh, uh, phrase that I tend to throw out. I read in The Guardian a couple of years ago and always stuck with me because it sort of shows the scale because you can throw out words like there's 30 billion cubic meters of concrete uh, consumed every year. But 30, no one can get their head around 30 billion, right? So <laughs> there, there, there was, um, there was a, a phrase I read in The Guardian a few years ago. It stuck with me and it was, um, by the time you've finished reading this sentence, 19,000 bathtubs of concrete will have been poured. 19,000? That's a huge 000. amount of bathtubs of concrete <laughs> being poured in, what was that, 15 seconds or 10 seconds or maybe 20 seconds because I, I, I mumbled my words. But um, uh, yeah, there's a huge amount of concrete being consumed at any given time. So first of all, that's concrete. It's an amazing product. Um, it's mind-blowing how much of it is consumed in any given year. Now, what's the difference between concrete and cement? Well, concrete, as I said, is the hard structural stuff that you see all around you. It's what buildings are made of. It's what's in your foundations, roads, tunnels, etc. Cement is effectively the binder or the powder, the great powder that you see people pouring out of bags historically. And um, 
cement is uh, the, 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 the glue that essentially sticks the stones, the sand together after it mixes with water. And so um, the key issue, I guess, and it's, first of all, it's important to recognize the difference between concrete and cement because everyone sort of puts the two of them together. Um, uh, but uh, it is important to recognize there is a very, very big difference there. Um, an important thing to recognize now, if we sort of move on to CO2, aspect of things i can sort of get that into a bit more detail but i think um it's just important to make the distinction between cement and concrete and then you mentioned the word clinkerdale and yep. you know i probably don't get into this too early but um within cement you've got this key constituent uh which is called clinkers the key reactive uh, constituent within cement uh, or certainly conventional cement that um we use so I'll get into that in the CO2 context in a second, um, but you've got to you start with concrete, you move down a level into cement, and you move down a level again into clinker. And the reason you have to go all the way down to clinker is because when you start talking about CO2, that's the sort of level that you need to go to because it all stems from clinker, really. Right. That is such a good baseline. Um, and you know what? You have such a passion for this. I mean, normally, you and I are talking rugby mainly, and I feel like I could listen to you go on and on, which I'm going to, um, and ask you so many questions around this, but clearly the passion is there. Clearly that thesis you did, um, you know, is, is, is being used now. Um, I think it's also fascinating for those listening in to understand the difference, because I think you're right. A lot of the times we talk in construction and we talk about CO2 in construction, but we don't actually know where it is. And so mm. I think that's you setting the baseline for us to understand where the CO2 issues are or, or actually decomposing it first before we get to where the CO2 uh, issues are, I think it's really, really important for those listening to understand the, the different constituent parts. So is, so you were going on then, you're saying clinker is where the, the issue yeah. is, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to your point about understanding the, the, the constituent parts, it's, it's really important because, you know, um, there's a phrase I've heard before, which is some, or concrete is ubiquitous to the point of anonymity. You know, it, it's so everywhere. It's so around you. It, it's sort of it's it's you don't even see it like it's it. There's so much of it everywhere. And people uh, just say concrete, cement, certainly those two things just interchangeably. And it's, it's really important to make that distinction, because I think when you when you don't think about something in any great detail, nor why would you as an average citizen of the world? But um, when you don't think about it, it's really hard to get to that baseline that, that you're talking about, Dale. But um, can, can you have for, can you have um, concrete without cement? Uh, no, essentially, okay. no. Yeah. Um, now you can have uh, uh, construction materials without concrete for sure. Um, and you know, j just to sort of touch on that really quickly before I get to clinker. Um, you know, as it relates to other construction materials, um, and particularly as it relates to uh, decarbonisation, I'm a massive fan of exploring absolutely every avenue that we can to help decarbonise with, with, with the various building materials that we have. Um, and clearly timber, for instance, is, is one that always gets brought up um, as one that we should be focusing on in, in, in more detail. And uh, to a very to, a, to to an extent, I totally agree with that. Where where possible and where available, um, and where it's uh, uh, reliably and sustainably sourced, we should absolutely be using timber. But we've also got to recognise, you know, those numbers that I mentioned earlier on about the amount of concrete that's consumed in any given year. 
just dwarfs any other building material that's available out there. So um, uh, again, I, I love my stats, Dale. So, but I, I, I feel that it helps bring context. But um, there, there was there was a, a another stat I read recently, which which was a great analogy, and it was if you were to replace only twenty five percent of all the concrete consumed in any given year for so for a single year just replace 25 percent of that maybe it was only 20 percent you would have to cut down a forest 1.5 times the size of india if you were to place just 25 percent of concrete for a single year with timber that's how much timber you would have to cut down it's 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 just mind-blowing again how much concrete is consumed and how nothing else can be really sustainably put in its place now absolutely we should be using timber where possible um, and where it's sustainable to do so but we have to be realistic about uh, what we're trying to do here and uh, i know i'm jumping ahead myself here talking about decarbonization but rather than trying to replace concrete we have to try and decarbonize concrete which is where we have to try and decarbonize cement which is where we have to try and decarbonize clinker and the reason i say that and going all the way back to the baseline again is what i should have mentioned earlier on is Let's take a big cube of concrete. Concrete tends to come in meter cubes. Okay, yeah. take a meter cube of that stuff. Um, about only about ten percent of that will be uh, cement. Okay, so the rest will be sand, stones, water, etc. But only ten percent is the powder cement. However, that ten percent converts into about ninety percent or ninety-four percent of the carbon footprint of concrete. So even though it's only ten percent. Of the mass, it converts to 94, 90 to 95 percent of the carbon footprint of concrete. So essentially, when you try to decarbonize concrete, the end product, you have to try and decarbonize cement. Now, if you go down the down to the next level, when we talk about clinker, which is a constituent part of cement, on average in Europe, now it sort of changes from country to country. And the UK is, you know, I count the UK as part of Europe in, in this respect. But like on average, um, about seventy. Five percent of the mass of a bag of cement will be clinker. So seventy-five percent of the mass is clinker. Oh, However, ninety-four wow. percent of that is, or about ninety to ninety-five percent of that is uh, the carbon footprint of cement is clinker. So you go from uh, clinker being only seventy-five percent of cement and cement only being ten percent of concrete, but you've got this thing clinker which is responsible for about 90 percent of all carbon footprint associated with concrete wow. so you bring it all the way back to the baseline as you say dale and you can talk about uh, efficient use of materials and um these various other elements but you essentially bring yourself back to this thing called clinker and this thing called clinker is again it's an amazing product and i'll talk about that in a second why it is amazing but unfortunately it's got a massive co2 footprint associated with that so when we talk about decarbonization of concrete, decarbonization of cement, we're actually talking about how we deal with this thing called clinker. Okay. Um, so where, do, where, does, where does clinker come from? Is it a natural resource? Is it mined? What is, what is clinker? Yeah. So, so clinker is basically um, the, 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 the simplest way to put it is the way you make clinker um, is you dig up limestone, which is effectively the most abundant rock on the surface of the earth. Yeah. Um, and you heat that to an exceptionally high temperature and you heat that to an exceptionally high temperature with a couple of other little things like clays. But generally speaking, um, you're talking about limestone. And so when you heat that up to, a, I think it's 1450 degrees Celsius, 
and that obviously uh, consumes a huge amount of heat energy and that obviously um, the types of uh, uh, materials that we use to heat it with like pet coke or co uh, coal it gives out a huge amount of co2 when you do that so there's a big co2 footprint associated with the heating of the kiln to make to cook essentially the limestone however the co2 emitted from that is only about 33 percent of the problem okay. um which is surprising to a lot of people because you think you know if i could just electrify the cement process i'll get rid of the co2 footprint that'll only solve 33 percent of the problem uh 66 of the problem or certain yeah about two-thirds of the problem comes from the fact that um when you heat that limestone it basically degrades into co2 and clinker essentially and let me explain that in a bit more detail um and i told you i'd get detailed if you wanted me to get detailed uh, we're loving this keep going keep uh, going <clears throat> but um limestone its chemical composition and bear with me is caco3 okay so it's calcium carbonate caco3 now you recognize certain letters in there because what comes out the other side is cao which is essentially quick lime or and, and combined with a few things as clinker and co2 so you cannot so basically when that degrades co2 is just a natural emission associated with um uh, the production of clinker so there's literally no way that you can produce clinker without uh, producing a quite a huge amount of co2 in fact when you make clinker uh, today, for every ton of clinker produced, you'll produce between 800 and 850 kilograms of CO2. So it's a huge amount, like it's nearly a one for one uh, ratio. And, and that's because you've got these things called process emissions, which are basically not the energy emissions are obvious what energy emissions, the process emissions are emissions associated with the CO2 simply coming out of the limestone um, and, and uh, leaving you with clinker on the other side. Um, so there's if you if we look and then and I'll, I'll pause after a second but like if we think about how we look to decarbonize clinker or certainly the cement production process um there's two things you can do um if you want to uh let's concentrate on cement because clinker goes into cement if you want to decarbonize cement you can do one of two things you can either a capture all the co2 that's coming out of this process so as i say there's a huge amount of co2 coming out uh, capture as much of it as possible and i'm sure you guys we know all about carbon capture and storage and utilization, and uh, you may have even talked about it in your previous podcasts. Um, we can talk about that in a second if you want. The other way um, to uh, decarbonize cement is simply to use less clinker altogether. So find ways of making cement where you don't need to go through this process of making clinker in the first instance. That's where we as Ecosem sort of uh, place our business. It's, it's the non-clinker usage uh, element. And so, as I said earlier on, You've got a situation today where about 75% in Europe, uh, about 75% of cement is clinker. Um, and of that, the majority of the CO2 of the cement is associated with that clinker. So therefore, try your darndest to try to reduce that clinker as much as you possibly can within your cement mix. Because if you can reduce your clinker amount, you're going to therefore uh, effectively, or not effectively, um, linearly almost reduce your CO2 output associated with that cement as well. So those are the two ways that you can decarbonize uh, and we concentrate on the latter at Ecosan. So that, that's that's awesome. And you explain it so clearly. And I think most people, you know, will be able to follow this very, very easily. Um, now, you've got me fascinated in this clinker product because surely if you don't use as much clinker, does it sort of 
put any does it jeopardize the concrete um or you're going to tell me no there's innovative ways there's other means yeah. in which to strengthen the concrete um by substituting perhaps um the, the clinker um is, is that is that is that sort of where you guys are at with this or absolutely is... like so so clinker so much uh clinker is consumed uh within the cement production process because it is the most abundant efficient way of making cement right so if you consider um the fact that uh i mean the cement production process has been the same for over 200 years i mean it's 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 pretty basic if you think about it um and, and don't get me wrong there's been a lot of innovations that meantime but essentially at its core uh, it's been digging up limestone heating it to a very high temperature and um and, and having this great product at the end uh which is very uh, malleable um the co2 thing has never been a massive issue mm. right I mean, it's it's up until relatively recently and um, Ecosem was actually um, uh, founded in the early 2000s off the back of the Kyoto Agreement in, in the mid-90s. Um, and it was doing really well for the early 2000s. And then, bang, the uh, financial crisis hit and everyone forgot about CO2 again up until relatively recently. And when I say relatively, sort of three, four years ago, um, maybe a, a touch longer, but sort of in that time period. But there was never any need to... Uh, look beyond clinker um, because it was such an amazing product, right? Um, however, um, there's a reason why uh, only 75% of uh, European cement is clinker. Why wasn't it 100%? Why, why wasn't it 95%? Why, in fact, in America, up until quite recently, it was 95% clinker. Cement, cement was 95% clinker. Oh, wow. Um, but the reason why Europe um, has a lower percentage, all the way down to sort of 75%, um, is because there are other products out there that have very strong cementitious qualities associated with them. Uh, so cementitious is probably a word that... That's a, a few people massive have... word. I've never yeah, heard you use yeah. such a big word. Uh, yeah, <laughs> say, say that five times over. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm sort of bamboozling people, I think, today with the words <laughs> clinker and cementitious. But, you know, hopefully every day is learning there, right? But um, uh, so cementitious uh, 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 products are essentially uh, hydraulic binders, which again isn't a very useful phrase, but like it's essentially <laughs> a cement, a, a, another uh, something that has cementitious or gluable or yep. binder properties, right? And so there's a, a bunch of products out there that um, exist with these qualities, um, the, uh, and the and they're they're really good and and they're they're uh, even have uh, superior qualities over clinker in, in many instances. So the durability um, associated with some of these uh, other products, which are called supplementary cementitious materials, SCMs, um, are, are, are exceptionally good products. The challenge is, is that they are simply not as abundantly available as oh, clinker. Okay. Um, and remember, as I said, clinker is made from digging up limestone, uh, one of, if not the most abundant rock on, on planet Earth on the surface. Um, these other products are not um, in, in many instances, or if they are, they just haven't been as researched as heavily over the last you know, decades as Clinker because there's been no need to because Clinker is such a good, cheap product, right? Um, but there are, are others do exist. And whether they are byproducts of other industries, such as um, uh, granulated blast furnace slags that come from the steel industry, 
Uh, coal has a has a byproduct called fly ash, both of which have been consumed extensively in the UK for a long period of time. Um, uh, calcine clays, natural pozzolans, and indeed the, the 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 pantheon which which we see standing proudly today in central Rome was not built with clinker; it was built with a natural pozzolan. It's a, a pozzolan is a a volcanic rock uh, which has very strong cementitious qualities associated with it. So. There are lots of other um, uh, products that do exist. They simply do not have the same uh, availability or economic cheapness, let's say, as as, as clinker production. Um, and that's been a, well, as a result, it's never been a consideration. Now, because of the carbon situation and because of the amount of CO2 associated with clinker production, um, we as an industry are beginning to focus more and more on these alternatives to clinker because um, they, generally speaking, if not all of the time, have a much less CO2 footprint associated with them than than clinker does. Um, and so there's a lot of research being put into it at the moment to try and uh, find out ways to reduce the clinker amount by as much as you possibly can in cement and you're seeing some uh, countries going faster than others. Um, the UK, uh, actually, because it's historically had an abundance of sort of these byproducts from the steel industry or the coal industry, is actually quite advanced in um, in in uh, clinker substitution, as we call it. The USA, albeit has a strong coal industry and steel industry, it's ger- generally been located in a very small geographic region in the Midwest. And as a result, in many other parts of the USA, it's got very high clinker amounts in its cement because it just simply hasn't had access or hasn't bothered or whatever phrase you want to use um, to really push the clinker uh, element downwards. But that's a long, long winded way of answering your your simple question, Dale, which is um, no, you uh, uh, there are ways and means and proven ways and means to reduce the clinker amounts significantly without detrimentally impacting strength, quality, durability, etc. That that's awesome, and I think what I take from that is one of the key, I guess, challenges or hurdles around moving away from clinker has been capitalism. Um, you know, and people want to make money ultimately, and if there's a cheaper way to do it, um, and there's no incentive to use sort of more climate friendly, carbon friendly materials, then then why do it? But I think that's changing. I think that's changing. Oh, um, but absolutely, I- absolutely. Like just to jump in there, apologies. Um, and and this is where uh, CO two is is really changing the game at the moment. Um, in Europe, in particular, um, the carbon tax pro uh, system that's been set up, um, is essentially going to by twenty thirty five. So. 10 years or 13 years or 12 years away, it feels like a long time. But in, in, in the world of slow moving industrial products is only around the corner. Um, there w- will be a situation where the cost of producing a ton of clinker could triple. So uh, as a result of the CO2 costs associated with uh, clinker production being put in place by the European system at the moment. So um, at the moment, uh, across Europe, uh, emitters of co2 mm-hmm. in theory have to pay a co2 tax on the co2 that they produce however they've been largely um 
those taxes have been largely hid from them um, for, for a long period. But up between 20 to 30, 2025 and 2035, gradually those um, barriers to CO2 taxation will start getting taken away bit by bit by bit, such that by 2035, they'll be fully exposed. And as a result, the cost of producing anything associated with carbon uh, emissions will increase in cost significantly. And one thing I should have mentioned earlier on, about clinker and, and you raise a great point Dale, earlier on about uh it you know it is a wonder product in many ways except for the co2 um it costs about 35 to 45 euros pounds dollars it's all kind of the same these days but it costs in and around that region to produce a ton of clinker 35 to 45 that's nothing pounds. that's like it's nothing. nothing yeah it's around the beers these days you know what i mean and that's it. And a, a ton is a lot of stuff, right? So you've got this exceptional product historically that is really cheap, really abundant. I mean, you can call it capitalism, call it whatever you want, but like it just made sense. You know, why wouldn't you do this if you're not considering the CO2 element? Now, clearly, we are considering the CO2 element these days. Um, and when you consider that the CO tax associated with, or sorry, CO2 taxes could be, or certainly they're close to 100 euros a ton of CO2 at the moment today. They expect it to rise significantly. You add on 100 euros of tax to this stuff, you go from 35 to 45 euros a ton to produce this stuff to well over 100. And that's a massive impact. So these guys, like the, the cement industry is, is, is very, very focused on finding solutions, not um to reduce clinker for for clinkers clinker reduction's sake but because there's massive economic benefits in doing so do you, do you think some of the tier one tier two contractors are sufficiently bought into reducing their their carbon footprint given the amount of carbon you given the amount of concrete usage or is it you know almost going to be commercial uh, commercially driven like like you say there and then my my follow-up question to that is what in your view what's the role of government in construction and, and working towards net zero so so in the uk we have a a target of being net zero by 2050 mm. do you think government should get more involved in regulating the industry you know you've already mentioned the the eu taxes on that what, what's your kind of view of where the, the 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 big construction companies are at the moment and then what should the government yeah. or governments be doing yeah, yeah. So actually, um, it's it's really interesting. I think um, uh, again, working it through to to the baseline, as as Dale said at the beginning. Um, I'm an engineer at heart, so I, I'm the same <laughs> as you guys. Uh, I, I like to do this, but um, uh, we actually work with some of the biggest construction companies in the world, like like uh, Vancy Construction or or Vinci or whatever whatever is pronounced uh, at various other parts of the world. But like Vancy Construction in France. Um, we work extensively with them and some of our low carbon, except, exceptionally low carbon products have been used by them in the likes of the Grand Paris Express, which is Europe's, I think, biggest infrastructure project. The Athletes Village uh, for the Olympics, uh, we're using stuff with them. I think we poured something with them in Heathrow Airport recently. Oh, wow. Um, so um, we're, we're, we're doing quite a lot of uh, stuff with these contractors. And I think there's a real desire uh, amongst the contractor uh, industry to to drive uh low carbon construction um, and i think uh the if, if you think that through i think a lot of it comes from uh if you think about the very very top of the chain that the finance world uh where, where i historically sort of inhabited and um, they're demanding low carbon um uh 
construction now. Governments are, are demanding to an extent, and we'll get onto that in a second, low carbon construction. Um, and so as a result, contractors feel the need and the pressure to uh, bring forth uh, low, low carbon construction. You then move down to the next level in that particular chain, and that's the concrete producers. So concrete producers are different to cement producers. Concrete producers consume cement that comes from the cement producers to produce the concrete to make the buildings that the contractors want. So concrete producers are different cement producers. Um, and so the, the, the concrete producers are under a large amount of pressure to decarbonize or certainly bring through low carbon cement and concrete as well. The challenge then occurs that when those concrete producers go to the cement industry and this, the, the solutions simply aren't fully available. Like people are working on these now, but they're simply not fully available now um, because the, whether it was a historic incent, lack of incentivization or, or lack of a need to change or whatever the case was, if there's only high carbon cement available, what are you going to do? Like you, you can't do much. Like the, the, the building has to get built. So um, the concrete uh, guy has to take the cement that's available. Uh, if that's high carbon or low carbon, let's hope it's low carbon. But if it's not, so be it. And, you know, if you, you can call it whatever you want, but if you want to get your building built, you have to sort of, roll with the punches to a certain extent so but i think absolutely there there's uh, a desire across the chain but particularly at the very top of the level at the finance government level i think um in terms certainly in terms of uh i don't think it's purely platitudes either i think that they're they genuinely want this to happen and as a result contractors are doing the same um but 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 change uh we will get the change that we need to get eventually i think where governments sit is their ability to accelerate that change. And so I mentioned earlier on in, in Europe and, and, and the UK um, has followed the European model of carbon taxes. Now, uh, there's been a few recent uh, slight amendments at a political level around that whole sort of mechanism. But generally speaking, um, carbon taxes across the UK and Europe are a very, very strong mechanism by which we can incentivize or force the pace of change uh, from a decarbonisation point of view. And um, you're beginning to see that sort of filter through in, in the amount of innovation that's coming through. However, you know, governments can always do more. And, and ultimately, governments are, generally speaking, um, ac across the developed world, they're the ones who consume 50 to 60 percent of all cement produced. You know, infrastructure projects in uh, run by governments are massive, you know, and you certainly don't build tunnels um or bridges out of wood, generally speaking, you know, it, it tends to be, or certainly a huge amount of that tends to be cement or concrete. So um, their consumption is absolutely massive. So they can absolutely drive the necessity to bring through low carbon cement and really drive through um, the, uh, the, the the acceleration towards low carbon and simply not take no for an answer. So for instance, in Ireland, where I'm from, uh, I was really proud to sort of see an announcement, I think about six months now, where uh, the government not only uh, specified, now this is still going through regulation of policy, so we'll see where it sort of lands, but they not only specified low carbon cements had to be used, but they specifically said low, low clinker cements. And that's a really, really important thing, because if you specify low clinker, again, as I say, you're going right to the source. And I think um governments getting smarter around that and, and really getting specific in their um requirements for low carbon um is, is only going to benefit things another example is for instance in in the netherlands 
where uh, if they are, if the government is undertaking a, a public procurement pro, uh, uh, project there, there, um, if you are within ten percent of the project cost, but you can prove that you are low carbon through various metrics, you will win that over your competitors. So it's it's really setting the bar and accelerating the uh, the degree to which um, low carbon um, can be incentivized. Yeah, that, that's that's really interesting what you're what you're saying there about ring being a real driver for for change. You know, it, I kind of thought back about the plastic bag tax in in the mm. UK. It almost reduced the consumption by about ninety five percent overnight. And really? yeah, you, you've you've mentioned so far a, a lot of the countries and governments who are um, doing these kind of carbon taxes and incentivizing it are probably more developed countries, more mm. European countries, mm-hmm. where. So how are the, the kind of China's, India's of the world, how far behind do you think they are behind um, behind the, you know, the UK, Europe, America? Are they on the same trajectory? Uh, do they have the same incentives? It's, so it's in really, right? So <clears throat> here's the thing. In many developed nations, they actually have a lower clinker content in their cement than we do here. And that sounds completely counterintuitive, uh, given everything I said about the low-cost uh, uh, production of, of clinker. But let me explain that. Um, to produce a or to, to build a clinker plant, it'll cost you between two hundred and fifty and three hundred and fifty million euros, pounds, dollars, whatever, maybe even more these days with inflation. But it costs a huge amount of money, and these are big old pieces of machinery. So. To get uh, to find the correct piece of land in the right location, close to your raw material supply, close to the end consumption supply, uh, to get the planning permission. And whilst I appreciate in some countries planning permission might be easier than others, nevertheless, these things do pollute the air in, in, in many respects. It, you know, a lot of company uh, countries, including um, China and India, are really wising up to um, air pollution. Uh, it can take a long time to not only source your land to get your planning permissions to eventually build this. And it costs you a huge amount of money. When you consider the difficulty in, in, in bringing these things through, let's park that for one second. It's very difficult. Now you flip over to a country like China or India, which is building like crazy, right? These guys, and remember when I said, there's a, uh, a new New York City going up across the world every single month. Like these guys are building like nobody's business, and not just in India and China, but many other countries. Um, so it's not a CO2 problem. Their issue is capacity. Yeah. How can I keep getting more and more of this stuff out when it costs so much money and it takes so long to set up one of these plants? I still need to build bridges. I still need to build, build hospitals, schools, houses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I can't do it fast enough. So you end up in this sort of situation where necessity is the mother of all invention. So you use the materials that you have available to you uh, to produce the cements that allow you to uh, move forward as fast as you possibly can. Now, don't get me wrong, they still consume a large amount of clinker, but their, the amount of clinker that they have in their cement can be nearly 50% less, or certainly uh, 35%, 40% less than the average European or American cement. So whereas a, uh, the, the clinker content of cement in uh, the USA is anywhere between 85 and 90%, and Europe is sort of 75 percent ish down around china a few years ago was down around 50 percent because they were just finding other stuff they had a big 
steel production um, uh, industry, which had a lot of byproduct coming off, but they had lots of coal power, power, power plants, the same with India. They could put that into their product, right? So it, again, it comes down to um, the availability of that material associated with, well, first of all, is the geography set up for you? Just because limestone is a very abundant product or uh, rock doesn't mean it's everywhere perfectly around the world, um, but you still have to build everywhere in the world. So there's a thing of, a, can you build your clinker facilities fast enough? B, is the raw material available to you? And if it's not, and you can't build fast enough, find whatever else you can to get your stuff built. And back to your point, Dale, you know, these uh, uh, countries are building really, really, really robust pieces of infrastructure um, with, uh, with with clinker contents that's, that are a lot less than, you know, necessarily mm. what they, they, they need to be, you could argue. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your, your, your question, Martin, but um there it's a weird one and it's very um uh location specific and, and and in fact in i go back to the point of uh 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 raw material availability in a lot of west africa there ain't no any there's no limestone right there's no limestone so what are you going to do they've imported a lot of clinker historically to build the structure they need to uh, uh build but in the likes of ghana They've now moved to a product called calcine clay, which is essentially it's clay that you heat up to a very uh, large extent that performs like a cement. It's just because it doesn't have the CO2 in its in its core being, uh, it doesn't decarbonize in that respect in the, in mm. the same way as clinker decarbonizes or, or uh, uh, throw, throws uh, the CO2 into the atmosphere. So you can make calcine clays instead of clinker in Western Africa. And that's not necessarily a, a, a capacity issue with building their plants fast enough. It's they don't have the raw material. So it depends on different parts around the world. Uh, you will see these really interesting opportunities where the necessi- uh, mother's necessity, what is it? Necessity is the mother of all invention type <laughs> scenarios uh, keep popping up. It's really interesting. I love this. I, mean, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I grew up in South Africa and my mm. one of the businesses my family had was a building supplies uh, store. And I and I knew what concrete was made up of. I mean, I've obviously asked you this for the audience today, but I knew you took cement, you mix it with whether it's sand and crusher run, as we called it, and you know whether it's one to four and the different parts of water, and you made concrete. Um, but I find it fascinating that you can decompose all the, like I say, the constituent parts to make us truly understand where carbon is, and bring this back up to your point on sort of almost substituting clinker. If the alternative, as you say, is carbon capture and carbon storage, because there just isn't enough other raw material to replace clinker, <laughs> what are, what are we doing as an industry or as as around the globe? What are the different types of carbon storage and capture when it comes to making cement? I guess with less clinker or no clinker even, or, yeah, or but... with clinker that emits carbon during the process. Is there stuff we're doing? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so l- let me just put you straight on, on, on one thing. Um, low carbon cements and low clinker cements are being uh, used widely across Europe and around the world. Okay, um, not widely enough. Um, and let's let's take Europe as an example because you know it's closest to home and you know it, it is a technological. Uh, the really interesting thing about Europe actually is that it's uh, it is home to uh, essentially this the cement industry. You know, it's uh, cement industry is one of the few industries along with the car industry where Europe is a genuine leader. The likes of Holcim, Heidelberg, 
uh, Bootsy, Vika. Like these are, you know, the biggest cement companies in the world outside of China. Um, but they are they are genuine world leaders. Um, and so let's let's be clear, you know, uh, low clinker cements, low carbon cements do exist. So, for instance, whilst the uh, um, uh, clinker content of the average cement in Europe will be about 75 percent in the Netherlands, for instance, it's below 50 percent um, because there is a large steel industry in, 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 in the Netherlands, which can consume um uh the slags that are that that come off that so so and, and indeed the 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 construction project that we're undertaking with van c uh the the um the the uh grand prix express we have europe's lowest ever uh carbon co2 footprint cement being used in that and it's got a carbon footprint of, i think about 75 kilograms per ton of cement when a ton of uh, traditional or conventional cement would be more like 600. So we're nearly 10 times less oh, wow. CO2, right? The issue is, and you did point this out to be fair, um, is that historically it's been very difficult to scale um, low carbon cements because there simply isn't the abundance of materials available to do so in comparison with clinker and in comparison with the amount of construction that we need to undertake. However, this is, I guess, where a huge amount of innovation is taken. Um, so, uh, for instance, at Ecosem, as an example, we're not resting on our laurels by saying, okay, we've got a really cool low-carbon uh, low carbon cement, uh, but what do you do? You can only produce so much of that because there's only so much of that material available. That's not really going to – it's nice to do in a particular product, but you're a project, but you're not decarbonizing the industry, and we've got a mission to decarbonize the industry. So we are bringing forth new methodologies – new low carbon alternatives and other people are doing the same to a an extent where we can reduce the car the clinker amount of cement by up to 70 percent you know from the 75 percent it is today down to about 20 percent on average clinker footprint um, or clinker content within cement on a truly scalable global level so just just to just to be i just want to sort of point out that historically you're right um it's very difficult to scale low carbon cements because the amount of uh, unabundantly available materials was holding that back. Um, however, that is changing with a huge amount of uh, research and development being undertaken by Ecosem and many others. Um, but I guess parking that uh, for one moment and by saying that today we feel at Ecosem the most scalable low carbon cements that you can possibly make will have still about 15 to 20% clinker in the cements on a scalable basis, you're still left with CO2. Yeah. And so we still need to look at uh, carbon capture as a uh, platform that can help ultimately get us to net zero. Um, I think what we're very passionate about uh, saying in Ecosam and, and other low carbon cement uh, producers is that um, we should focus on the low hanging fruit that we have available today, i.e., try to reduce the clinker amount within cement by as much as we possibly can using all of the materials that we can and focus as much R&D development as we can on bringing that down. Because if you can uh, get rid of the CO2 at the source, you don't need to worry about capturing it and, and utilizing it in the future. And mm. um, I think, unfortunately, um, a lot of focus, rightly or wrongly, has been uh, to solely focus on CCUS as the answer or the, or the panacea 
almost to the detriment of looking at anything else. And so, you know, I am more behind carbon capture and storage than I, nearly anybody else because I, I focus on the cement industry. I look at the cement industry and I know how important carbon capture and storage is. But the thing is, if we purely focus on that, on a technology which really won't be abundantly, you know, or what really won't be widely used till the mid 2030s at least, and then has various operational um, issues associated with that, if we're waiting till then, we've lost the game. You know, we have to decarbonize by a huge amount by 2030. Mm. So let's not just focus or put all our eggs into that particular basket. Let's focus on pulling down the low-hanging fruit elsewhere as well. And I feel, you know, uh, at government level, and, and sort of back to your point um, earlier on, Martin, I think the government, for instance, um, is focused on, on low-carbon cements and is focused on uh, the consumption of, of low-carbon cements. And the reason being, by the way, and I, I failed to point this out at the very beginning, uh, the, 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 um, the CO2 associated with the production of, uh, of, of cement uh, represents about 7 to 9% of all CO2 produced globally. I mean, that's lot, That's more than aviation, which we all know about, yep. shipping, which we all know about, and long-haul trucking, which we all know about, combined. Combine those three, Whoa. and cement is still more. So governments are really, really focused on this. Um, but sometimes we feel like the focus is too myopically in one particular direction mm. and not spread across... Um, a, a number of different levers which you need to pull. Like, for instance, take take the power sector. We didn't uh, decarbonize the power sector by just putting carbon capture plants on coal plants. We didn't say, oh, the only way to produce power is to produce is to burn coal and we'll put carbon capture on top of that. No, we pulled that wind, we pulled that solar, we pulled that hydro, nuclear, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're, we're continuing to innovate in those places. And so we, we say the same about pretty much every industry and, and given we're in the cement industry, that's what we focus on. Um, at EcoSem as well. So it's interesting if if we if we look at perhaps life cycle analysis of concrete, right, from all the way from production all the way to um, deconstruction, um, are there potential recycle reuse oh, yeah. technologies that we that we can use that that help with carbon as well? Absolutely, uh, and, and you know we. Uh, in fact, I was I was chatting to uh, I introduced. A, a company to our R&D department about a month ago uh, with a company that's doing some really interesting stuff in this space. So again, particularly in Europe, there's been some really great innovations happening with the recycling of concrete vines, for instance. And these uh, may or may not have cementitious qualities associated with them, but you can certainly use them instead of landfilling them. You can certainly, and you should be using them. Um, now, we at Ecosem, and again, apologies to sort of to keep banging on about us, um, but we again it's like timber like as far as we're concerned we absolutely should be doing this um but for us um you can't recycle concrete vines in sub-saharan africa when there's nothing to recycle you know yeah. these guys are still building new uh roads infrastructure buildings so we have to find ways of allowing uh the developing economies to uh grow um, but on a low carbon basis. And yes, absolutely recycle where we can recycle, use timber where we can use timber. But ultimately, our focus is on finding how we scale low clinker cements. And, and we feel passionately like that's mm. where the focus needs to be because um, that's the most, if you can crack that nut, it's sort of, it's kind of, uh, it's the uh, nuclear fission sort of situation where like, 
Pyro is no pyro issues are no longer a problem. Um, did I get that right? Is that pyro fission or fusion is is the big one that we're trying to crack? I can never remember. It. Um, but yeah, that we we feel like getting clinker as low as close as possible to zero is where we need to focus efforts. And you know, we're not the only ones doing that. There's a lot of very smart people, um, including the majors, trying to do that. And uh, we will see results in the next few years. But I, I, think I was going to ask you, how, you know, faster. you said the next you, the next few years. How, how close are we? I mean, is there is there an alternate? To yeah, limestone? yeah. Like uh, you're not going to give away your secrets, are you? <laughs> well, I can give away a few. Like I think um, uh, we focus. I mean, listen. When we talk about using the most abundantly available materials to help uh, produce less clinker, um, all we do is not all we do. It's it's, it's very complicated, but it sounds <laughs> quite simple. Instead of uh, burning the limestone to produce clinker. Uh, we grind the limestone uh, uh, in, before putting it through the through the through the process. So um, uh, I don't want to go t- too far down a rabbit hole here, but you know, given your your your, your penchant for going into detail, Dale, um, I'll, I'll 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 go down a little bit. Um, but basically, I, I mentioned earlier um, that on average in Europe, uh, it, it can uh, cement contains about seventy five percent clinker. Uh, it contains about I don't know, uh, 20%-ish uh, other low-carbon cements. Um, and it contains about 5-ish percent limestone, just filler. It's just filler material. It's just like mm. ground chalk, Just and you just throw it in there. And it's called filler because all you're doing is just filling out the space. Like you're filling out more space with this stuff so you can produce more cement, basically for, for free. Um, and uh, that limestone filler is it's inert, um, it's abundantly available because it's also limestone um, and it's ridiculously cheap and it doesn't uh, give out any CO2. Um, it's historically been used for very, very minimal purposes. What we do at Ecosam is we maximize to a huge degree the amount of filler that can be used in cements, um, thereby reducing the amount of clinker uh, required by as much as we possibly can and also reducing the amount of low carbon materials within that cement that need to be used as much as possible and the reason why we uh, minimize those as much as possible is because if we minimize those in any ton of cement it allows us to spread the availability of those supplies over much much greater volumes of cement and concrete so yeah. we're trying to minimize it in any given ton of cement so it can benefit a much larger amount of uh, cement and concrete and um, but we do so by maximizing um, the use of this limestone filler within cement all sounds very easy, obvious. There's massive technical technological challenges associated with that, but there are ones that we are overcoming and others are overcoming as well. And it's a really, uh, I don't know how to explain this, but it is a very exciting space in the material science world. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the increased use of, of filler materials, inert filler materials, um, basically using any inert filler material that is in your uh, presence just grind it up as fine as you possibly can, throw it in your cement, and through various um, uh, methodologies and manipulations, you can get a very, very robust, very strong, very durable uh, cement and concrete um, to keep your uh, clinker content as low as you possibly can. The reason it hasn't been done before, um, alongside the sort of technical challenges associated with that, is because um, there's never been the incentive, right? We, we mentioned earlier on, like, why, why would you go through the trouble of it's it's a complicated procedure it's difficult to do the whole construction industry has been set up to do high clinker cements everything's working tickety-boo you know it's um 
why, why, why change this? It's only, and we have a phrase in turn at Ecosystem, it's CO2 changes everything. It really does. And mm. it brings through innovation. And there's a lot of people focusing on this type of stuff now. I, I, I'd uh, bet that we're towards, or if not at the vanguard of that, and that's an exciting place to be. Um, but there are people chasing this down because if you can maximize the amount of filler material, it's cheap, it's abundant, it has no CO2, you're onto a winner. Given the amount of work that's going on clearly in, in your industry and companies such as yourself, do you, do you feel generally some of the major European American governments are committed enough to hitting that zero target? So, you know, we've seen recently in the UK, they've, they've rolled back on some of the short term commitments still with, you know, still aiming towards 2050. But do you, do you think this is, is this really affecting news? Like, is it hampering, helping within the well, construction industry? Because some of it is going to be commercially driven, like, like you're saying there, there's um there's a, there's a need and there's obviously clearly a, some brilliant work happening like what what's the impact on yourselves yeah i i think um it's it's really interesting i think a, another really key benefit of maximizing the amount of filler in in your cement is that it's also really cheap to do um it's it's it, we're, we're not getting a a new fufu material from the moon you know that that sort of can be used in a, in a few uh, tons of, of concrete. We're, we're using abundantly available materials and we're doing it very cheaply and you're able to do it in the existing cement plants and facilities that are available around, around the world today. So I, I think, you know, leaving governments to one side, I think there is a genuine desire in, uh, in the capitalist world, Dale, that wants to yeah. decarbonize. And um, there, there's a real desire to do so. And I think if you can uh, produce... Uh, low carbon, a low carbon alternative that is in and around the same price as the high carbon alternative, you will see people go for that. Um, now, I think uh, when, I, when I said earlier on where governments can help is I, I genuinely believe they can accelerate it and I think they need to accelerate. But I think people are going to inevitably move in this direction anyway. Um, but like to give to give an example of our own company, um, we uh, we're uh, out the door in terms of people um, getting in touch with us about this product, about when they can use it, about how they can help us get it through the um, standardization process as quickly as possible so that they can use it because they want that competitive advantage. I mean, if you're a concrete producer and you can go to a contractor, um, whoever that may be, and say, see that guy over there, he's got a, he's got the, I've got the same product as he has, but mine's low carbon. That's a very strong competitive place to be. And um, whether governments are necessarily genuinely backing that or rowing back on that is, is kind of moot from uh from from our perspective you know that's kind of micro i think at a macro basis it's it, it, again it, it's quite interesting i think um you're seeing different things happening in different economies right and, and i actually for my sins um spend a lot of time uh, <laughs> in the likes of brussels uh westminster the irish equivalent um, uh, I can't speak French, so so not in France, but we we got a team who are doing this. But like it's, we spend a lot of time trying to get this message out to governments and supra governments that alternatives are available and and should be heeded and should be brought forward. And it's very interesting to see the different approaches that you're seeing in the likes of the USA versus Europe versus the UK. I think most are directionally traveling in the same direction, some possibly more slowly than others. But what I find more interesting is how they're doing it. You know, mm -hmm. the USA is throwing literally a trillion dollars at the problem. 
You know, I mean, it's the, the, the um, what's it, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. You know, they are throwing money at this. Europe has an aging population. It's not the base currency of the world. Um, it's got its own sort of longer term problems. It doesn't, it can't just throw trillions of dollars at this or euros at this thing. Instead, it uses regulation and it uses stuff like carbon taxes to get through the problem. And the UK is trying to play somewhere in between the two of them. And, you know, I think it needs to get a bit more sophisticated in how it thinks about it. But, um, and, and I think, genuinely, you know, there's obviously uh, elections coming up and so there's going to be a lot of politics played around this particular element. But I think genuinely, genuinely and generally, directionally, everyone's moving in the same direction. And, you know, China has its own way of doing things and India has its own way of doing things. But um, there's a real, I think there's a real need um, and desire to, to, to make this work. I think it needs to be faster. And I think the focus absolutely has to be on 2030 as opposed to beyond that. Um, but I do think um, uh, people uh, are and trying in, in many instances to, to do the best they can. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, Owen. Um, it's always dangerous when an Irishman talks about the IRA, but we won't go down that route. Um... <laughs> I mean, yeah, they couldn't name that better, couldn't they? I mean, Joe Biden, he, he's, he calls himself Irish and he, and, he, and, he, and he named it that. I think that was pretty special. I don't know what he was playing that, but... Anyway. But on your, on your point about price point, um, it, you're right, though, if you think about it, right? You, you'll only get to the right price point when you achieve economies of scale. And with anything new, you're always gonna, it's always going to be more expensive in the beginning because you, you're throwing money at research. It's you know, new tech. Uh, you, don't, you don't have the, necessarily the, the factories, the machinery, the technology built to scale yet. And I think you're right. This is where governments can help if they potentially force, force industry to go that way. We'll get to that rise, r- the correct price point where you know, using low carbon or no carbon concrete um, with the right technology is the same price as using concrete with absolutely and 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 it's it's you know they don't necessarily even need to force as i said earlier on in many uh nations uh governments consume 50 to 60 percent of the product so even if they just want to prove that a technology works or help it get to the scale that allows it to get to its economies of scale and brings down the overall cost they can play a huge part in that there's obviously incentives there's tax breaks there's straight up grants that are available um i think again back to my point on CCUS, um, I, I think it's being too myopically focused in, in one particular direction, all associated with that, as opposed to other types of low carbon cement technologies. But, you know, that's beginning to change as well. Um, and I think you're going to see the, the fruits of uh, or the rewards coming off the back of that. But I think uh, a, a good starting point is governments putting their money where their mouth is and actually consuming this stuff themselves. Yeah, no, I agree with you. If, if they're, you know, one of the, the key, I guess, the demanders if i will for lack of a better way of putting it um of the product then then they they are part of the problem um if i and this one might be a little bit left field owen but with all innovation going into concrete and uh, you know the past sort of month or few weeks back um and it's probably still in the news raac right it's been used for the wrong reasons technology my research i knew i knew he'd hit me with something (laughs) Uh, um is are we in danger potentially of creating innovation in concrete and then you know decades later realizing that potentially the innovation we had has jeopardized the standard quality etc or do you think we've got the right standards protocols processes in place to prevent that from happening yeah listen i i think um there's a number of lessons to be learned from the rrac situation first of all actually technically it wasn't even a concrete 
um it was it was it was a, it was a essentially a mortar you know um but i think that here's the thing about that as well um it actually lasted for its technical lifespan you know it lasted for the 30 years and beyond that it was meant to do so the problem was that for whatever reason local authorities or, or governments specified it in buildings that were clearly going to last longer than that and the reason for all of that was because they had to build really quickly after the war you know i mean this was a, a necessity situation um, in, in the UK um, at the time. Um, and, you know, frankly, it's, 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 I, don't, I, this, I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but like, it's frankly a testament that it lasted so far beyond <laughs> its, its technical lifespan, right? I mean, that's an amazing thing, right? So I, I think, um, but to, to, to get more serious on it, like that was a failing of planning yeah. of... Uh, government due process, um, uh, making sure that we're keeping our citizens and children safe. Um, I think um, uh, nowadays uh, the, the standards uh, process are unbelievably rigorous. Um, it is uh, It can take 15 years for a new cement to get through into the market. You know, now, and from our opinion, from our point of view, that's far too long because the rate of technological change allows you to test and manipulate and check the durability and the strength of these things far faster than that particular time frame. Um, nevertheless, um, we are seeing um, a, a robust uh, standardization process being brought up. And uh, I mentioned earlier on that uh, Europe is, I guess, the epicenter of cement science in, in, in many respects. And um, where Europe standards lead many, many others follow. Um, so whether that's in, in, in Africa, many parts of Asia. So uh, in the USA, it's slightly different. They've got their own standardization process, also exceptionally robust, and South America tends to follow that. So, um, But the, the, the processes that are in place today are nothing in comparison to 1950s UK, uh, where things were rushed through. Um, and don't get me wrong, we should. the most important thing about cement and concrete is not it's CO2 content. It's the fact that it needs to stay up. It needs to stay safe. Uh, it needs to be robust. It needs to be durable. Um, but I think uh, the, the really good news associated with all of this is the uh, the low carbon uh, clinker alternatives. Um, I mentioned that they've been used for, for donkey's ears, even when CO2 wasn't an issue. They were used uh, largely for performance bases. So they actually help. You know, I said earlier on, Clinker has many, many, many advantages. Uh, abundancy, abundancy of supply, uh, cost association, ease of use, et cetera, et cetera. The low carbon uh, alternatives to Clinker have been used historically for um, their durability um, uh, advantages. So, you know, in many seaside uh, structures or infrastructure uh, projects, you will have low carbon alternatives to clinker specified, not because they're low carbon, but because they've got better durability um, uh, traits associated with them. So um, again, a fairly long-winded answer to, to your pretty simple question, Dale, but I think in a nutshell, um, A, the standards processes are far more robust um, and they are exceptionally robust. Trust me, we, we spend a lot of time going through these processes. We, we're very confident by them. Um, but uh, I guess the, the alternatives to clinker-based cement um, 
can do and will show uh, benefits from a durability point of view as well. Now, you bring up a good point there, um, durability. And I know it ranges depending on you know how the concrete's put together, um, what's the makeup of it, how it's being installed, maintained, all that type of thing. But it was quite interesting. I was chatting to Adam Robinson, who's been on the podcast before, and he was project director of the Boston Barrier. And he was saying, Ooh. if we're designing, for example, the Boston Barrier or anything else to last for 100 years, um, what happens after that? Because, you know, we, we these are massive construction projects, right? Um, do we have an answer? I mean, we won't be around, or maybe we will. Who knows? There might be a pull that someone invents. But um, if we're if we're only designing them for a lifespan of, let's say, a century, what happens beyond that? Are we actually constructing uh, buildings and things that are actually going to end up crumbling one day and we're going to have a massive problem? I don't know, Dale. Like, I think, um, look, look, look at the, I go back to my point about the Pantheon, okay? Yeah. Um, Pantheon's been around for, was it, what is it, a thousand years, over a thousand years, or something around then. Um, that was built with a pozzolanic material, um, a, a uh, what we would call a low-carbon cement alternative today, but basically, it was the cement that they used back in those days. They didn't have clinker. Clinker has been around for about 250-odd years. Um, so as it relates to uh, the buildings that we are building today, my guess is that uh, the more we understand about technology, the higher our standardization process goes. I think the and, and the, the the longer uh, lifespan that is 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 uh, demanded uh, by uh, whether standardization industries or or governments or what have you, I think you'll actually see modern buildings lasting longer than. Uh, buildings that have been built in the last 100 years, right? Yeah. Um, because we know that these are problems, because we are seeing things crumble. We are seeing this, or I mean, this RAAC thing, that is going to roll on for years, and you will see lots of um, positive benefits coming out of the back of that. So, listen, I, I, I don't know the exact cement or concrete that's been used in this Boston barrier. I don't know the specification profiles that are going into it. That's for them to determine. Um, yeah. But there are ways and means that you can get exceptionally durable um uh, uh products um in, into the market and if, if if you'll indulge me for one last go <laughs> of course the way um here here's the, i'll give you i'll give you a bit of insight into 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 key innovation um the i mentioned at the very top of the podcast um that uh we one of the great benefits of concrete is that it flows like water for a couple of hours takes any shape for a couple of hours and hardens right so we like our concrete to flow like water. Uh, here's the really counterintuitive thing. Uh, too much water can be bad for mm -hmm. your concrete because concrete or with too much water ends up having little pores in it um, uh, full of little water globules, which eventually evaporate. And when they evaporate, they lead to little cracks, which ultimately disintegrates the concrete. So you want to get to a situation where you have low water cements and concretes. Right. And if you bring down your water content, that's a really, really good thing to do for your long term durability and long term strength of your product. However, what's that going to leave you with? It's sort of a gloopy, viscous mess of a concrete that can't flow like you want it to flow. And that's where you're seeing a lot of really interesting innovation happening in the market today, bringing down the water content of uh, of, of concretes um, to it. But they still, still through various methodologies and means can still flow like water. 
and have those longer term durability profiles associated with that. And that's sort of innovation at its heart. And um, people tend to think that cement is cement is cement, concrete is concrete is concrete, but in the exact same way for hundreds and thousands of years, what could be possibly different about it? It's everywhere. But there's the amount of innovation going on in the space is, is, is pretty, pretty insane. Yeah, you must have seen those um, competitions where people build concrete canoes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Have, have you seen that, Martin? You look like you haven't seen Yeah, they build concrete canoes and they try and make <laughs> them seaworthy and buoyant. And it sounds crazy, but yeah, mm. go and have a YouTube of it. Um, it's pretty cool. Mm. Um, Owen, I, I'm fascinated. To, I, honestly, genuinely, like I, I know you've been on other podcasts. I've listened to you on on how passionate you are about this topic. But I love the fact that you're passionate about it because I, I've never spoken. <laughs> no, gen, genuinely, I've I've never spoken to someone that's as excited about concrete as you are. I mean, you know, you only top it by your love for rugby, uh, which we probably should and get you, into. Dan, and my love for you, <laughs> and your love for me. It's mutual. It's mutual. Um. We got to go into a bit of prediction. Um, we're recording this ah. ahead of the the quarterfinals. Of course, Ireland are playing New Zealand. Ireland are number one in the world. Do you have a prediction for us? Oh, oh my God! I mean, this is uh, I I literally uh, ha- barely slept a wink last night uh, because I'm already excited about this game. So by the time <laughs> the game rolls around, I'm not even sure I'll probably be awake to watch it, let alone predict what the score is going to be. Um, but it is, uh, I think this is probably the biggest game of, of in, in Ireland, Irish rugby history. And I think it's basically going to come down to, they've proven over the last couple of years that they can handle the pressure. But I mean, this is just at a whole other level. And having to beat the All Blacks down in uh, New Zealand, like win the Test Series in New Zealand last year, uh, I, I think um, was it a, an all black scorned is an all black you know that you want to be wary about you know yeah. um so i think it'll it'll come down to i think the 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 key is that uh i think ireland as a unit are incredible and, and they're a beautiful thing to watch it's a, it's a, it's a well oiled machine i think i actually get a bit annoyed when people just call them slightly um you know robotic because i think there's a lot more skill than that deserves but I think we can sort of hands up say that the individuals coming out of the All Black team or New Zealand team are, you know, they've just, they've always had the best rugby players in the world, right? I mean, they, they just do, they can break a game. So honestly, like, I don't know what the odds are, but it's <laughs> going to be ridiculously tight. Of course, I'm going to say Ireland are going to do it. I've now jinxed my entire country. So if <laughs> if, uh, if they don't get through, um, I am not promoting this whatsoever for you. Right? <laughs> well, the, the, the beauty about it, Owen, is this this podcast will only get released after the results. So. <laughs> so we can put this one out. I like it. Well, at least I'll Brilliant. give you my, my, my New Zealand prediction now instead so you can just copy that one in instead. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll we'll keep it in. We'll keep it in. Um, if I if I add my my view on France South Africa, um, I I do think we'll edge them uh, just because I don't think France have come up against a very robust physical side in a long time. Um, so, it, but if South Africa don't make it through, um, my support is behind Ireland. So there you Thanks. go. Um, look, it would be remiss of us also not to mention uh, give a shout out to our rugby club, the Rosen Park Nomads, as well or Old Mads as we known. Uh, one last question from me, Owen. What do you think the uh, the, the lads are going to say listening back to you and I talk about concrete? I don't think they'll make it this far. <laughs> I think I, I fully expect lots of abuse to come my way and it's it's all well-deserved. And as you say, 
to get passionate about uh, concrete and cement takes a very special person and I will take all slings and arrows that come my way as a result. So bring it on. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I know there's so much more we could go down. As you say, there's many, many rabbit holes. I feel like we, we definitely need to get you back when we have some more technology advancements, particularly around clinker and the reduction yeah. thereof. Um, it sounds like, you know, there's exciting innovation happening in and around concrete and it's very, very appropriate to the, 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 the vast professionals that listen to this podcast around the globe. So thank you for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, before we let you go, are there any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Um, no, just, um, you said next time, uh, when, when we have innovations we're talking about, I think it's, um, it's it's happening it's 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 out there i think uh everyone can sort of play their part as i say cement is is ubiquitous to the point of anonymity but i think it's um it's it's a case of pushing um uh, your government leaders to to really take notice of this i think it's one of those products that let's face it um it's gray it's pretty boring not many people think about it um but it is is a massive massive issue and a massive problem and there's lots of specific issues within the UK, which I didn't even touch upon, which we couldn't even leave to the next time. Um, but it's, it's really important that we get this right. Um, it's a, along with steel, uh, the biggest industrial producer of CO2. And we have got to get both of those industries right. So um, if I can spark the imagination of anybody out there to sort of look into this further, I think um, I'll, be, I'll be a happy man because um, it deserves more focus than it, it probably gets. Um, but um I'm excited by what the short-term future holds in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've certainly sparked our imaginations and a whole bunch of listeners listening to this. So once again, thank you very much, Owen Condren. There you have it, folks. That is the episode. Of, that is the episode. That is the end of this episode. Um, but remember, before you go, please do help us pay it forward and share a link to this episode on your favorite social media. Once again, a massive thank you to our guests on this episode, Owen Condren. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me and Martin, it's bye for now. For more information, blogs, or to support our charities, visit projectchatterpodcast.com. And if you would like to sponsor the podcast, get in touch via our website. You can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.